what's up everybody happy friday welcome to the good trouble podcast where we have curated conversations for racial and economic justice in the com in the commonwealth my name is reginald williams i'm one of your co-hosts here with mr gregory ball greg how are you feeling today i'm feeling wonderful you know why i'm feeling wonderful reggie because you know what today is the day Mm. We, we are going to bring the folks that listen to the Good Trouble podcast a little bit behind the scenes. They get to see the, the, how, the, how the sausage gets made and all that good stuff. Because right. we have two incredible guests that not only can give you some insight on the Good Trouble podcast, but on a variety of subjects. And who are our guests today, Greg? Well, today, <laughs> we have the people who are going to be taking over the Good Trouble podcast. <laughs> They don't realize we brought them here to quit. This is, we quitting on air. This is it. We done, Reggie. You ready to roll? Let's do this. Let's welcome Marie Francis Rivera, president of the Massachusetts Budget and Policy Center. Marie Francis, hello. Hello. I am delighted to be here with, with you all. You all are my favorite people. Thank you so much. So and, and Amari Paris Jeffries, executive director of King Boston. Amari, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I didn't know this was the great resignation episode, so I didn't know that that was the subject matter. So I, I decided um, to just go past that. Just, you know, you know, it's, it's not it, happening it, today. Not on my watch. That's right. Yeah. So for you folks out there that are wondering why are Greg, Greg and Reggie quitting, this whole idea of how we even got started on this, this, um, this trip of this endeavor, this endeavor. Thank you. See, Red, that's why I keep you around, Reggie. He, he gives a smooth version of my coarse language. This is what Reggie's here for. So Reggie and I are good soldiers working at, in our respective spaces. And we were brought on to be the producers of this podcast. That's what we were original. Remember, Reggie? That's what our job was going to be. And then somewhere along the line, our original host, who happened to be our guest today, decided to say, you know, hey, how about y'all do it? And then they went off into the sunset. We ain't seen them since. You oh. see, this is where the multiple stories come in because I have a different perspective. Mari and I <laughs> said, we are more than happy to be the co-host of this podcast. And y'all said, nope, Greg, you, Reggie, right. we, we're, we're the people. We're, we're, we're going to hold this down. We can do a good job. We're excited about this. That absolutely. And, and you guys have been doing a beautiful job. That's how I remember it's been the story amazing. too. You know, we 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 thought about Renaissance men who were artists and creatives and thinkers and budget policy leaders. And so there were there was no in our minds no better person people to lead this. So um, we're we're excited to be uh, guests on the show, and um, you know just just be a part of this. Be a part and of your is, movement. And this is how we have leaders, and this is how leaders operate. This is why they're in their positions. <laughs> Excuse me. This is why they're in their positions doing so well, because they just really smoothed. They hit us with the smooth R&B and spun us real quick, and now we're, we're back to running the show, apparently. We'll fact check that in a little bit, but we can get on to the main event. So yeah. <laughs> let's, hear a little, let's hear a little bit about your journeys, Marie Francis and Amari. Uh, Greg and I have the pleasure of knowing you for many a year, but let's get let's let's make sure that the listeners know how you you came to be at the helm of two of the leading organizations around racial and economic justice issues in the Commonwealth. So, Marie Francis, we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and journey? Sure. So I um, was born in Puerto Rico. My parents are Puerto Rican, um, and when I was 
pretty young. We moved to Florida. Uh, so I lived there for, for a while. And then pretty quickly after that, moved to New Bedford, Massachusetts and grew up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, the whaling city of the Commonwealth, um, place I love very, very much. And yeah, spent most of my life there and then went off to college. Um, the, when I was growing up in elementary school, my uh, vision for myself was that I was going to be a wealthy businesswoman. And, you know, it's, it, it was kind of like a one track mind, like I will be successful. I will be a wealthy businesswoman. <laughs> so I went to Babson College, which for those of you who know, um, is a, a college that focuses mainly on entrepreneurship and business management. So I went there in the country, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's great. It was a, it was a wonderful place. I met lots of folks from around the world um, and uh, have lovely friendships from, from that time. And, you know, but during my time there, I said, eh, I don't know if I want to work at a big corporation that doesn't feel like it's a good fit for me. I want to change the world and, who knows what ways. So I decided when I graduated Babson that I was going to go back home to New Bedford and um, work at a startup nonprofit that was helping young people. And so I went back to my hometown. I went back to live with my mama and um, worked there for five years in schools, helping young people. And uh, then I said, I gotta, I gotta get out of my hometown. Can't be here forever. <laughs> <laughs> so I moved exactly one hour away to Boston, Massachusetts, um, which really opened up um, a lot of different perspectives and possibilities for me. Um, when I was working in New Bedford, I was really focused on, okay, how can we directly help a young person? You know, it was a very direct service. Um, when I got to Boston, I realized there's this whole policy world and there are different ways that we can position ourselves as people of color, as black folks to um, create change in the world. So that's how I got interested in policy work um, and how organizing is paired up with that to, to build power. And that's how I'm here today. Well, see, that, that sounds like a nice, that's a beautiful journey. And this guy over here, you know, he fell up a turnip truck. I don't know, something like that. <laughs> no, say, Mari, please tell us, tell, tell us a little bit about how you, you know, came to came to be in the space that you're in. We know that most people don't know that you're from, you're not a Boston native. I think a lot of people do believe they went to high school with you here in the Boston area, but they're, you know, they don't know that you grew up in the, in the South. Well, I'll, I'll say every time I hear Marie Frances say she's from Puerto Rico, I hear that big, big pun, uh, Fat Joe song in the back. And she's like, I'm from Puerto Rico. And then I heard. Y'all know what I'm talking about? hundred percent. That's the song. It wasn't it wasn't just me. It wasn't just me. But yeah, I'm, I'm you know, originally from I'm from the South, born in North Carolina, raised in Tennessee and moved up to Massachusetts because I, I joined the army and I got stationed up here, you know, and I was, uh, um, I think slowly and surely convinced that this was a place that I wanted to be and, and had an opportunity to make uh, great friends 
uh, raise a family and get married. And so I came here, I was a, a dental hygienist in the military. And so I used to clean teeth in the army for a living. And so have this tendency of looking into people's mouths, uh, taking a peek. And I tell people that, and the interesting thing when I tell people that I look into their mouths, their smiles change. So they either flex with the big, big cheesy smile or they just smart, start smiling with their lips. So like, like Reggie's doing, if y'all could see this, we recorded this exactly just like the lip smile. Let the record show that my co-host has a very bright, wide smile that it's, it, is, it looks like he should be in a Colgate commercial. Do not do that to my guy. But he did the lips. You saw Marie Francis stun on the, the little side smile with the with the with the crest Colgate look. So uh, exactly. So, you know, and I think my my whole uh, ethos of work has been in service, and so service to to my country, and service to my city, and service to my community. And uh, when I had an opportunity to 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 leave the army to to. Uh, uh, move into civilian life. Um, I, I, I stayed here in Boston and have had the opportunity to work across different uh, sectors of, of uh, work that impacts people, everyday people, from early childhood education to out of school time to uh, behavioral health to family uh, support and therapy. Uh, and, and I've tried to complement and supplement those experiences with volunteer board experiences from uh, climate to environment to social service organizations and higher education institutions. And so really thinking about, you know, all the ways in which human beings function in a world where we live, work, socialize, play, learn, uh, experience life. And so, you know, what, what I've rely soon um, through through my own personal experience, but in this work um, that people of color continue to have the and the end up at the lower end of most spectrums and um, that systemic racism um, is the culprit in uh, perpetuating this for children, family, people. And so um, I've, I've dedicated uh, all that I, I could to continue in this work and be a student of it and, and learn how multiple systems have impacted uh, the prosperity of uh, Black, Brown, Asian, BIPOC people. As I, as I listen to both of you, I think about um, you know where you know we're you know we're partners in this podcast, you know Mass Budget and, and King Boston, and I, I think about where different organizations fit in kind of the ecosystem of helping folks. And Marie Francis, you were talking about having a kind of very direct contact with folks and direct services when you started off. Um, and then at Mass Budget, it's kind of a very different um, different model. And I know with King Boston, you know, while we, we, are, we do have some things where we're working directly with communities, um, a lot of our stuff is very larger, higher, or I don't know, I don't like to use the term higher level, but larger scale things. And that's probably just as bad, but yeah. Um, so there's these ideas that are kind of, you know, that are in different places. And I think many times when people think of service to people, they think that direct service, do you find in your roles, um, as leaders of organizations, do you find that that is a little bit of a rub or a little bit of a difficulty to get people to understand where we all fit or where all the, the places fit together to work towards, um, you know, making a better place for us all. So I think that there is a disconnect, right? Mm -hmm. I think there's a disconnect with people and 
them themselves. I think there's a disconnect with people and each other. I think there's a disconnect with um, government services and the people they serve. I think there's a disconnect between people's experiences and how laws impact, you know, what people's rights are. I think that there are a lot of disconnects and, um, you know, I, I don't believe that we're doing higher level work. I think it's um, different type of work focusing on um, kind of the, the, the policy level. And I think it's critically important that all of us are, you know, like Amari said, like involved in our communities, like talking to our neighbors about this um, in ways that are just plain speak um, because the work that we're trying to do at Mass Budget is trying to make systems that are really complicated, like the state budget process, um, mm -hmm. understandable for people. So people know that actually this big piece of legislation, this $50 billion a year impacts you. And this is how it, and this is how we know it impacts, you know, people, but tell us actually, is it working for you and what can we do to make it better? So I think it needs to be a, a conversation um, amongst all of us um, to gain a greater understanding of you know, what's going on in this world. Yeah, and you know, and th there was this um, Pew Center uh, study that said three quarters of Americans um, have decreased their level of trust for the government and 64% of us have lost trust in one another. And so this connection between individuals um, you know, this this hand-to-hand -hand combat of, of, of solving challenges for individuals coupled with what's happening in, in a larger frame is important and linked to, to Marie Francis's point. And so 64% of folks have lost trust in one another. So that, you know, I guess if, if we had 10 friends, that means you kind of don't trust half of them, right? And so what's happening in, in a society uh, where these splinters have taken place, where you know the our trust in institutions and individuals have deteriorated. How do we get that back? And so I think I think for me, when when we thought about doing this podcast, this connection between policy, big data, you know, the things that that tell the big story, um, and the the individual stories, this experiential knowledge that all of us have, and and for people of color, that's invalidated. Uh, there had to be a connection between the two. And so, you know, that to me was the strength of um, Mass Budget and King Boston uh, coming together to do this, because all of this is both big story policy, big story data, and small story individual people and personal relationships. And so, you know, that's, I think, one of the things that I, I thought we attempted to do. And I, and I must say, I, I've been a huge, huge fan of Marie Francis uh, since since I met her, I don't know, maybe almost 15 years ago. And um, I think to have this opportunity to be uh, a friend and a colleague and a soldier in this work and, and us uh, amplify our work through through this platform also felt like a worthy endeavor. And so um, I think all of, all of this is in, interrelated. And I think it's the power of, of the, the platform that the two of you have really created. We appreciate that. He's, he's still trying to get us to not quit, ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think well, I will say a word about um, my, my big bro, Amari. And I think it was 10 plus, maybe 15 years ago that we first met. And <laughs> I remember when I was at the Himes Foundation, 
And we're oh, hope, hope is a good story. Hope is a it good story. It is a good story. <laughs> and I remember Amari coming in and thinking, wow, who's who's that? And he seems like very competent, capable. His suit was looking sharp as always. Probably double-breasted. Probably, probably double-breasted. I said, whoa, that's a nice suit. And he gave me his tailor's number. Um, and I always appreciated this. <laughs> It's like he's yep. looking sharp. Um, but but um something you said to Amari that I really admire about you is that you are a student um and you, you just are the work that you're doing at King Boston around reparations is really inspirational. Um, just moving that conversation forward and being unapologetic about it in various spaces. I've seen you in spaces with. I think it was the head of Bank of America or something. And we were in a conversation and you're like, well, you know, this is what I know about banks and reparations and what we need to do um, in this space uh, to address the harms that have been created by this particular system, right? So I always uh, appreciate that about you. You're a student and I've learned a lot from you. So good. I'm sorry, Reggie. Go ahead. You can jump in. I oh no, I I'm, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation because I think some of what I've heard about both of your stories and these connection points is the importance of embracing one each one another in community, embracing big structural change as the opportunity for us to move forward. But we also have to like look back and see where we've been. And I feel like I've really appreciated that as well as part of this partnership between King Boston and Mass Budget uh, in this endeavor, as we called it earlier with the podcast. But I wanted to ask Amari, what was the journey like, and Greg, please feel free to chime in, but what was the journey like of having these very difficult and tough conversations and starting King Boston up during the pandemic? You know, starting spring 2020, it's been nearly two years of this work in action and you've accomplished a lot. I'm curious what what you've learned looking back over what you've accomplished so far and how and what that means for the work ahead, particularly as we're looking at a new gubernatorial administration as we're looking at the future of the commonwealth just curious to get your thoughts on on what progress has looked like for you over the past two years well you you know in in this moment you know it's been it's been terrible uh for many of us uh and you know we're still we still don't know the impacts of young people not not being able to be with each other and being in school us being isolated from from one another you know we're, we're social creatures um folks who are quote essential workers um, really bearing the brunt of what was uh, important to us what we realized what was important to us we, we, we don't know the impact of this um, and I think through it all I, I've seen a lot of organizations led by black and brown people uh, thrive um, financially uh, spiritually emotionally uh, organizationally and I think a lot of it has to do with um, our ability to swim in waters that were already murky. And so this, this was just a tide in already murky uh, pool that we've always been swimming in. And so um, I think that, that to me is part of the success of some of us, many of us uh, that have been able to, to, to move an agenda in this moment and to really elevate agendas in places that um, were not elevated in that way. I think the future that I, what I'm hoping is, is an opportunity for us to remake the image of, of a world we want it to be, uh, not going back to these five-day work week, uh, slaving and in, in, in toiling in, 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 in those ways, 
type of environment. I hope we go back to where we can acknowledge the the diversity and differences in one another and truly lean uh, into uh, accepting those, those differences. Um, I hope we can continue centering our most vulnerable, continue centering Black and BIPOC people um, and, and imagining a world where all of us can be prosperous, you know, eliminating this zero-sum thinking. And reparations is a part of this uh, elimination of zero-sum thinking, right? There's, you know, Cory Booker, you know, I, I saw uh, um, a, an excerpt of a, of a conversation that he was having uh, talking about poverty empathy, right? There's really, you know, the really poverty of empathy. And reparations is about poverty empathy, right? It's this really lack of empathy for one another. Why, why, why is it so hard for someone else to be made whole? Why do we have a problem with it, right? And so reparations is really interrogating ourselves. Like, should you not want people to be made whole, particularly when um, that wholeness in them benefits all of us, right? And so I think this idea of reparations in forms of all forms, housing, monetary, you know, a literal 40 acres and a mule, um, I think we need to do what it takes to make people whole. Uh, and that making people whole, that having that empathy for other people so that they can be whole actually frees us all. And so uh, that's why I think King Boston is leading in the reparations conversation. I don't, you know, we, we don't know who's eligible. We, we don't know um, who might benefit from that, right? Both folks who have been victims of uh, systemic racism, African-Americans who are descendants of slaves, uh, Caribbean-Americans who are descendants of slaves or, or formerly enslaved people, excuse me. Um, we don't know who would be the beneficiary of direct payments, but we, what we do know is uh, acknowledging and having empathy that so that other people can be made whole is a part of the process. This truth and reconciliation is a part of the process. That feels like the future to me. Uh, and that's where I'm hoping that many of us are going. So when you when you talk about that, I think about our work on um, striving for an anti-racist state budget and looking at public investments um, as you know, it's a, a set of choices that you have to make. Um, but what are the values that are guiding those choices and how you allocate that money? And what are the changes that you want to see? And what are the problems that we're addressing? Um, I, you know, I was just talking to a set of public sector and private sector leaders yesterday. Uh, and the subject was to talk about the state budget. And I said, I'll talk about the state budget. But what I want to talk about is some of the challenges that are facing the Commonwealth. Because what we're trying to do with whether it's public funding, whether it's philanthropy, is to figure out ways to solve these massive problems. In Massachusetts, um, we're a very segregated state. We live in our bubbles. We're very disconnected, right? So different people have different experiences about what's going on in our state. And it's important, like you said, for us all to have a clearer picture about the, po the pockets of poverty in our state, um, the housing emergency that we're in around evictions. Um, that kids are going hungry. Um, and this is happening in communities of color, Black communities, Latinx communities around the state. Um, so I think there's also a level of awareness. Um, people are just so disconnected. I remember I was listening to the Liz Walker, Reverend Liz Walker, 
episode um, that you all did, which was really beautiful. Um, and she was just talking about the influx of information. There's just too much information, too much disinformation um, that people are getting lost in. And it's, um, it's important the work that King Boston is doing to just clarify that. Like, this was history, things happened, slavery happened. This is where we're at now. And we need to have a conversation to address that. Um, and just uh, continuing on with that really strong messaging and saying, nope, guys, let's not get distracted. This is what, these are the problems. Here are some solutions. Let's have this conversation and make some change. I would hate to have to apply the, the lens of critical race theory to our state dollars, you know, with the state budget and see where, where we're, you know, we often say at mass budget that uh, budgets are moral documents. So literally you're putting your money where your mouth is when you're making these investments and these appropriations. And if you aren't getting dollars into the communities that need it most or looking to solve those challenges where you might not have the dollars to really big structural policy change, how can you call yourself a leader in any aspect and really working to close these gaps. I'm curious, Marie Francis, on the point of, you know, leading the conversation and demystifying, you know, and getting into the misinformation. I guess I'm curious, what are what are some of the biggest challenges that you see around like state fiscal and budget policy being accessible for everyday folks, folks who may may have heard something about, you know, ARPA or that new federal stimulus package or this, that, and the third as a leader in that space. What, what are some of the biggest challenges for you that you see coming up? So the biggest challenges in getting people involved, everyday people involved in understanding, well, you know, the Mass Massachusetts government is one of the oldest governments in this nation, right? And so there are many arcane processes it's very convoluted. And we also, if you're thinking about the state and the state legislature, um, it's pretty opaque. You know, studies have shown that we have one of the least transparent um, state budget and legislative processes in the nation. So it's hard for people to get involved because it's very confusing. And um, some of it is actually done not in um, public view. So you know, that's a challenge that we work to resolve to try and break it down for people. We have this um, cute graphic that some, someone our team made at one point that we call budget cats, and it shows the very complicated budget process throughout the year. Um, just to break it down for folks, try to make it fun. Like this is $50 billion a year, and this is your money, and you have a say in whether it goes to your communities, whether it goes to an additional teacher in your school. So here's the process. Um, and, you know, we need to support people in being able to be civically engaged too. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, Marie Francis, I think that that cycle is so important, right? You guys remember in college uh, that, that Maslow's hierarchy of need uh, physiological need is at the bottom food, shelter, clothing, sense of belonging, safety, uh, esteem, right? And then self-actualization at the bottom. And so when folks are really functioning in the physiological realm, right? Like, can, you know, can I afford to eat? Can I afford to put gas in my car? Can I afford to, 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 to send my kids to a good school, the physiological, right? Like so much energy, so much bandwidth is there. And then if they could get past that, then the second band, right? The sense of belonging, right? can I be safe as a brown person or as a woman or as an immigrant, right? And then the, 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 the next um, 
you know, the next rounds, like we do, we do we get to the round where folks can engage in this process because they're so busy in the bottom realms of, you know, their physiological needs, their safety, their, their sense of um, belonging. Right. And so like, how do we continue to eliminate those barriers? Right. And that's, that's the cycle. That's the, that's the complication of all this. Right. Because engaging in the, the policy and the budget process allows one to have some say so in what is dictating those those realms of our physiological needs. And so, um, you know, I think how how we how we end these cycles in which people who are just trying to make it uh, can fully participate in this democracy is, you know, I think one of the greatest challenges um, that there that we're up against, you know, including the level of fatigue that occurred in our last election cycle. You know, we didn't get folks out in the way that um, we could have. And so, you know, there's a lot for us to do to address that fatigue in our, our budget, our policy, and our electoral politics this cycle. So I, I think, you know, to go back to that last question, I think it's still part of the, uh, the, the future challenges that lie ahead for both of us. You know, I, I, as we uh, look around the, the Boston area, there seems to be a, a few folks that have stepped into leadership roles similar to yourselves as um, Eric Estevez over at the Zacom Fund, and I know yes. that um, Lisa Owens over at Heinz, right? Um, do you think that this is, you know, that is, uh, what do you think about the significance of, of yourselves in, in a, you know, a great deal of, of leaders that are stepping into these roles at nonprofits that are, you know, that are coming from, from not from the usual places, that are coming from, from outside the, the usual realms of where uh, leaders come from what do you think about that and what do you think that impact will be on the um on the the you know landscape here in boston i think it's important um and and i think it's in it's additionally important for folks in our positions to also have a really um strong and collective analysis on power as well. Mm. Um, we can't be fooled into thinking that, you know, just because I'm running mass budget and Amari's running um, King Boston today, that that's going to create the change that we need. We have to be um, very aware that we're working uh, to change very entrenched systems. Um, and, you know, and it's important that, yes, there are many nonprofit leaders that are you know, we're, we're coming to maturity, right? And in the things that we're doing and the organizations we're running, it's important to partner up with, um, you know, partners in the private sector too, and um, folks in the public sector as well, um, because it's, it's gonna take a village um, of us who are coordinated um, and have a very strong analysis about what's going on and what is needed to materially change things for people like, us when we were growing up, you know, I always really like to think back. I was just, um, it was paraprofessionals day yesterday, national paraprofessionals day. My mom was a paraprofessional and, um, it brought me back to this story when I was filling out my FAFSA for college and, you know, you have to pull your parents W2, whatever. And I remember seeing that she had made $11,000 or $12,000 in that particular year. And, Part of it, it's, it's, we are, you know, um, more comfortable now, right? Living middle-class lives. But I try never to forget <laughs> that at some point, you know, 
I was living in poverty and there are a lot of people that are living in poverty and that's, um, that's who we're working in service of, like Mari said. It's so challenging when you think about like what poverty looks like, you know, for folks given like what to, to live at poverty at the federal poverty level for an individual is close to 11, like around 12 to $15,000 a year for a family of four closer to like $28,000 a year. And that's before taxes. Like what you're actually bringing home paycheck to paycheck working to make ends meet is really minimal in the grand scale of how much things are costing in today's society, especially with the pandemic on as an added layer. But thinking about how we can close poverty gaps. Marie Francis, I would love it if you could give us a little bit of a, of a preview of what you know our longer term policy agenda is for the Commonwealth envisioning equity. Sure, so if we, we stay on this point right now, um, thinking about people who are struggling to get by, um, the bottom line is that we know what policies work really, <laughs> um, it, poverty. So um, we just recently did a, a report, our uh, research director, Nancy Wagman, did some really excellent research that basically showed um, that when stimulus payments went out, um, when the earned income tax credit was increased for people, that, duh, poverty went down. You literally saw a tick the month that the stimulus checks went out. So we know that if we give money directly to people, it will help them to feed their families. Um, but entrenched power politics, whatever, um, are, make it difficult to move forward policies like that. It's, it's similar to reparations, right? Um, so, you know, on our agenda is, you know, we believe that everybody should have economic security. One of the things is, how do we get cash directly into people's hands when they're struggling? Um, there are multiple ways of doing that. Um, and, you know, another issue that um, I think policymakers, a lot of folks um, don't pay as clo close attention to is that there are a lot of people who are at the margins of these systems that are left out. So um, folks who are undocumented, mixed status families get left out of unemployment insurance. They often get left out of, you know, if you're not filing your taxes, you can't get that, you know, EITC bump. Um, and yeah, so we, we have to figure that out. So that's, that's part of the, the work that we do um, with lots of different types of partners, whether they're um, organizing in communities, whether um, they're more, you know, grass tops, advocacy groups, legislators, uh, to, to really try to say, we know what works, you know, broadly speaking. Um, but the political processes are, are really tough, especially here in Massachusetts, to move things forward. And, and Imari, for you with King Boston, you know, share with folks kind of the, the long term vision. I think people have, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, I hear people have hear bits and pieces and they're like they're excited about, you know, the festival that, you know, that we're working very hard on, um, which we're going to all have an incredible time and, and come together and and um in in June but you know tell tell folks kind of the grand vision cuz like you know you came up with this this big idea well not with king solely with king boston but the 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 latest moves and steps yeah you know you know cuz it, and it's really thinking about uh you know this again this larger connection between policy 
Uh, and, and, you know, and just thinking about what Marie Francis said in the beginning about policy being a moral document, right? And so, you know, how are, how are morals socialized into existence, right? And, and um, you know, they're, they're socialized in this subtle way, right? And so we care about, you know, I, I told you uh, that I was a dental hyg uh, hygienist, right? We care about our teeth in, in some part, you know, or don't care about our teeth because we live in a society where fluoride is in the water. Right. And so like it's it's in there and we're not even thinking about it. And if we're diligent, we, you know, we're gung ho, we might brush our teeth three days, of, you know, three times a day and floss and, you know, use the good toothpaste and stuff. And some people use the charcoal toothbrush. Right. Like those are folks who are diligent. And but but it exists all around us. Right. This hygiene uh, exists all around us. And I think I think the way in which we build this. Uh, or er eradicate this this poverty, this empathy poverty, right? This way that we uh, fully embrace policy and budgets as moral documents is by socializing those things into our everyday lives is, and, and getting rid of the things that have socialized or that have been socialized into us that, that separate us, right? There are 400 or there were 430 Confederate memorials built in this country, many of them built after uh, 1910, right? After 19, well, well past the Civil War. Uh, there's 100, and, or excuse me, 240 schools named after Confederate leaders. There's over 7,000 streets named after Christopher Columbus. And so it's it's no wonder the, the myth of Columbus being this great explorer, it's no wonder in certain places in, in our country that we, we characterize the Civil War and the slavery uh, that occurred in, in the early parts of our country as uh, this lost cause movement, because they've been socialized into people's ideologies, right? There's no wonder uh, we think about the friendly indigenous people putting cornucopias on tables and, and hosting big giant fiestas and parties for uh, wayward travelers, co uh, colonists who are trying to find a new home because they were persecuted. I mean, these myths are a part of our, our, um, our American story. They've been socialized into us and then, we, 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 and then we're shaped from this socialization. And so what would, what would a new socialization be for Boston? What would, be, uh, what would it be like for Boston to be really illuminated as a city of culture and not just one type of culture, right? The new all-inclusive campaign is like, what's your Boston accent, right? All kind of accents and, and all the ways that accents are important. Uh, and so can, how does Boston become a city of culture? Uh, and how does that culture uh, become internalized in our values? How does it shape our morals? And how does those morals shape how we make budget decisions? And so that, that's, that's the interrelationship between arts, culture, and humanities uh, and these very tangible, pragmatic documents and policies and systems that human beings create based upon these morals, based upon these values. I'd say there's three great storytelling cities in America, Boston, Philadelphia, and Washington, DC. And so the, the whole narrative of America, some, some might argue Baltimore, or, or I don't know, some of the other East Coast cities, but those are the three major storytelling cities of America. Right, people come to Boston to hear about one if by land, two if by city. Uh, people go to Philadelphia to hear about the Liberty Bell, or or, or they go to D.C. and see the monuments and memorials in Washington, crossing the Potomac and, and saving America from from this war. Right, and so these myths, these narratives originate in the East Coast and, and they spread their way uh, to the to the western part of the country. What would it be like for Boston to write new narratives, new stories? 
and, and inclusive, an inclusive story of America. And so family from four from Kansas City coming to Boston, hearing about a different Boston, experiencing a different Boston, and then bringing it back to their own city elsewhere, uh, changing the moral and, 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 and um, the, 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 the values of those cities based on what they get here and learn from Boston. And I think that's the opportunity that we have, and that's the moment that we're in. Something you said, Amari, really um, rings true to me. You know, you, when you mentioned fluoride just being so like engrossed, kind of under the radar flying our water, I also feel like the poverty and the wealth inequality that we're seeing in front of us and the fact that it's growing at such a rate is also that same level of the invisible kind of gas in the mind that you are experiencing, which you don't realize that it's really impacting you know, that that the opportunity that that family of four from Kansas City would have to come to Boston or maybe one of the suburbs of greater Boston because it's too expensive to maybe find a, a place that can accommodate everyone in the city limits. I'm curious, how do we how do we tackle really solving those types of issues when, as we've talked a little about about power and resources needing to get directly into the hands of folks? How do we make the space from a policy perspective for us to really do that? I know we've talked a little bit about reparations, but what are some other ideas that you might have in terms of how we can really make the Commonwealth one that's equitable for all? Yeah, you know, we got to get out of this anti-intellectualism that's occurring. And, and I don't mean intellectualism in the sense that, you know, you got to wear a tweed jacket and, and, and be stodgy, but just this kind of uh, elevation of, of uh, uh, I hate to use a word, fake news, right? Like, we, we got to figure out our way to be able to discern what's real and what's not real, right? Critical race theory is just a lens, right? It's a lens in which one can and should uh, see the world as it really is, and then make a decision around how you want to change it instead of demonizing critical race theory as this invisible boogeyman. And we've, we've come as a country uh, to, to start, you know, to demonize these things where people don't even understand what they are right critical race theory is one of those things where people don't know what it is but that's something that is scary you know we're turning people into anti-americans uh reparations is another boogeyman word that's being used oh no my tax dollars are going to be used to give someone else something else and i'm going to lose out something i'm going to have to pay more taxes these boogeyman languages and words um that you know that are dog whistles but we're so used to them right and those are the things that exist in in the background and I think in this moment, we're starting to acknowledge those things uh, that are in the background. They're starting to get more light and then and then we're starting to address them. And so, uh, you know, I think that's that's part of the ways that we got to continue to do it. We have to interrogate what was we have to elevate that and we have to ask questions and then decide for ourselves with real information. And, and it's going to really take all of us to get out of this uh, anti intellectual mindset, because learning learning isn't a thing we need to do just to get a job. Right. And so this vocationalization of learning is also problematic. It, learning is about your vocation or your pathway to a vocation instead of about being instead of about the human condition and our humanity and learning from others. Right. And so we've somehow equated and marbleized them into one thing. If you ain't learning for your job, then you know, what's the point of that? And why is everything about your job? And when we're in a we're in a moment of time, we were joking about this in the beginning. We're in the great resignation. Because we're tired of this learning for our jobs, and that's the only reason why we want to do something new. We're tired of that. Um, and so, you know, I think it takes more, you know, more of these discussions. I think this podcast is a powerful tool um, to really elevate and um, 
uh, illuminate conversations that need to be had and heard and listened to. And so, you know, I think I think the two of y'all, you know, we were joking, uh, you know, Marie Francis and I were passing the buck to y'all, but we we knew, I mean, we knew that you two were the right folks to um, help push push this discourse. So um, th that's my two cents. So hopefully, y'all ain't gonna resign by the end of this and, thing. And and I feel like you all are the the right choice because you invite people into conversations. And that's and that's part of the work that you all are doing, um, Amari at King Boston, uh, and that we're striving to do. Part of it is that, like we said before, there's a lack of trust. We can't do this change. You know, I think that whether you're black, white, whatever it is, um, we have a lot more similarities um, than we think and similar experiences. And it's trying to figure out those touch points. Um, and yeah, maybe we disagree on things, but let's just have the conversation. I think um, a lot of, you know, I, I tend to talk about taxes and taxing rich people a lot. And it's something that people don't want to talk about. Don't, you know, there there's people are afraid to talk about things that can potentially create some kind of tension. And I really push back against that. I think it's really important that we have direct conversations with each other about poverty, about taxes, about whatever it is um, that is slightly difficult that we all need to push through to create um, a better world, like you said, for all of us. Um, and, and, and I think sometimes we're afraid to do that. Um, but okay. you all invite people into the conversation. I appreciate that. They are really trying to get us to not quit. <laughs> these guys, these guys are good. We love working together. What are you talking yeah. about? No, we, listen, we didn't say we were quitting our jobs. We didn't quit the podcast. <laughs> just, just, just as uh, as we're hitting time, I wanted to ask lastly, Marie Francis and Amari. Uh, one, I want to make a quick statement. Thank you so much for your friendship and for all of the work that you both have been doing in the Commonwealth for decades. It's it's appreciated. It's seen. We see y'all, and it's been really great working with y'all. Absolutely. Um, just wanted to ask quickly, what's your commitment to Good Trouble? Like, what are you doing this weekend and the next couple of months? Like, how are you showing up and living your good trouble in your personal and professional lives? I'll pass it to Amari first. Oh, you know what? I, I Man, I, I've been trying not to partake in spirits um, as much as I wanted to. And I think I'm going to partake in some good spirits this weekend. And uh, I'm, I'm going to go on the ledge and, and, and do, right? You know what I mean? I'm going to do some spirits I normally don't don't partake in and I'm going to do that. And one of the, it don't sound like good trouble, but you know what I like doing? I, I like, uh, I like watching, watching TV on the couch and falling asleep on the couch and then waking up and say, Oh, I need to take myself to bed. That feels like good trouble to me nowadays, you know? And so, uh, so it's a, it's going to be a combination of spirit fest, um, 2022, and uh, watching TV into the TV watches me. And so I think that's what I'm going to be doing this weekend. But I'm off to, off to London on Sunday. And so I haven't been to Europe since 2017. And, you know, and no one, no one was traveling in, a, in, you know, in the way that some of us wanted to pre-pandemic. And so th this feel, feels like, uh, you know, my first foray into some, some significant international travel. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, to that and um, you know, trying to seek a level of normalcy through through travel and experiencing um, a new country and new environment. 
That's exciting. Um, I've been uh, getting into baking shows with my five-year-old son, Little Tiger. And so we are going to attempt to make a cake this weekend using fondant. I'm really excited about that. Um, Wait, I, what's, what's fondant? Oh, fondant is, it almost looks like clay, but it's, mm -hmm. it's edible. Um, so think about like clay that's really malleable. So then you roll it out very, very thin and you drape it on the cake. If you ever see those cakes that have that very smooth appearance, mm -hmm. that's, um, uh, that's fondant. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're going to try our hand at, at baking this weekend. I'm also going to be traveling next week. I'm going to be going to Las Vegas, Nevada for a conference to learn more about inclusive democracy strategies. So I'm really excited about, about that, learning more about ballot initiatives and the power of um, using ballot questions to um, change policy. Um, and doing it in a way that's inclusive of all communities. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, that's what that's what I'll be getting into. Well, you need a handful of quarters, put it in the ballot and push your voting box and anything that you, you It is an that. interesting place for a conference. Uh, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll definitely be good trouble. Yeah. Yes. Well, listen, or trouble, we, trouble. Or, you know, no, no, I'm going to say in the good trouble. I'm saying the good trouble. Yeah, just, just go to the buffets and go back to your room. Honey, and keep eat it, some keep good it, food. Exactly. Yeah. Keep it easy. Well, listen, we want to thank both of you for, for joining us today. And, you know, we aren't going to quit, I guess. You know, I guess we're going to keep the job, Reggie. Y'all you know. are doing amazing work. It's been beautiful mm -hmm. listening. Season two coming soon. Season two coming soon. We appreciate you all for, for giving us the opportunity. And we appreciate you for joining us today. And we are going to have you back because we only kind of dipped our toe into the the stories of both of you there's i know there's much much more that will, that i definitely want to hear um and just to hear more of your thoughts about where we're going and, and how we're going to get there so we will definitely have you back and i know um i think our our dj teddy ted has told us that i say that on a regular stuff to say so we're going to have you back. So I can't wait till you uh, join us again for the next episode of Good Trouble. Sounds great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>